Let's open our Bibles to the New Testament, to the book of Luke, chapter 13. We started chapter 13 last week, and we have one more paragraph this week. And then, starting next week in December, with the coming of Advent, we'll have a brief series of topical messages about the deliverer that the Lord had sent in Jesus. So we'll be finishing for now with Luke 13, uh, verses 6 to 9, and pick it up again in January. Let's hear from God's holy word, the ESV translation. And he, Jesus, told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found a note and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure, and then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word. Amen. Amen. Uh, cutting down, planting, growing, uh, starting, restarting. Uh, I, I, I still have leaves to rake. I can hardly get my mind around the season sometimes. It's interesting, in our modern world, we have less of a sense of uh, the end of a season. I, I was just thinking, for instance, the prevalence of video games. Uh, when you're playing a video game and you fail or you, you get beaten in a quest or something like that, you just wait a second and you get restored to life and you can do it all over again. Uh, there, there was an article recently about the endless reboots in all these games and what that does to our thinking and our worldview. It's so different from real life. You know, in the game, when you died, if you were playing recklessly, it's okay. You're going to get another life, and you're going to start going right away. And you can do that for hours, as some do. Its difference from real life is that real life has one beginning and one end. That there is a timeline, and it's linear. It's not cyclical. That's what the Bible tells us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he's told us in the book of Revelation how it will end. The Bible views time as linear. And we should view our life as linear. Yes, there are seasons and some things in life repeat, but we are not the same when they repeat. We are moving forward to the end, which God knows. The book of our life has a first page, our birth certificate, if you will, and the last page. And God knows every page from beginning to end. And sometimes modernity and the modern world can keep us from reflecting on that. And perhaps it was exactly the same in Jesus' day. As people were following him, as he went on his way to Jerusalem, he was teaching about the need for repentance, teaching about the need to be ready for the Lord's uh, judgment. In this paragraph, he gives a parable that's quite pointed. I, I hardly need to explain the, the complexities of this parable. It makes a point. It makes a point rather urgently. 
that we need to be living rightly before God, bearing fruit unto the Lord to whom we belong or else. The fact that it's a parable in one sense gives us a little bit of space to consider it, but its message still strikes home to us. If we find out in our life we've lived and made mistakes or lived recklessly or ignorantly or presumptuously, there isn't a reset button that's in our hands. Let's look at this parable under some headings this morning and understand what it teaches us. And hopefully this will prepare us for fruitful days of serving the Lord and knowing the Lord. And the first thing that comes out from this parable as we look at uh, the setting that is created, there's someone who owns a vineyard and in the middle of that vineyard there's a fig tree. It's a picture of how God owns the world, how God owns his people. He has rights over us. Or as I've said in the sermon's first heading, God's divine right to our fruit. God's divine right to our fruit. You see, God as creator has rights to his creation. He expects from us that which he designed and put into us. The capacity for work, the capacity for praise and glory. Why did God create music and the capacity for singing? I'll give you a hint. It wasn't just for TV commercials. It was so that he would be praised. The greatest themes would be taken up on our tongues and with our instruments. This is my father's world. We would sing his praises. God as creator has divine rights to our fruitful service. The book of Genesis makes that clear, the beginnings. Genesis, if you will, is foundational to the whole Bible. It puts out certain facts that uh, need to be understood if we're going to make sense of the whole of God's revelation. Theologian John Frame had said, creation is an act of God alone by which for his own glory, he brings into existence everything in the universe, things that had no existence prior to his creative word. And this uh, good theologian, John Frame, goes on to say, creation establishes God's ownership and God's authority. He has rights. His ownership, he has rights to all things under heaven and earth. If you remember, for instance, in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, one of the reasons God can command is because in six days he made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. So it's his, and he gets to say what it's all for and how it all works. Nehemiah was aware of that. Nehemiah is a wonderful book of rebuilding Jerusalem's walls and its temple. Nehemiah was a great man of prayer. Nehemiah 9, 6, part of his prayer shares this worldview that was introduced in Genesis. He says, you are the Lord, Jehovah, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, and the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. That's the view of the Bible. God as creator has these divine rights. He has the right to tell his creatures what to do, as he did right in the beginning. He made man in 
uh, male and female, he made them, and he, he told them, you can't eat of this tree, but you can eat of everything else, and I want you to be fruitful and multiply. Interesting for today's sermon that one of the very first commands of God was to be fruitful. There in a very specific context, but more broadly, the Bible says we exist for God's glory. Further, God watches his people looking for fruit. He's not only creator and has rights, he's actively paying attention. God's eyes see all that's done, and he will hold all people to account. I like this verse from Job 28. It says, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. Nothing escapes the eye of God. He even knows our thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. The psalmist says in Psalm 33, verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. And what does he do as he's looking? Well, he's looking at us and how we're living. We could say very specifically, he's looking for fruit. If you have your Bibles, let's take a a very brief look at Isaiah chapter 5. Middle of the Bible would be the book of Psalms. And if you turn a couple books past that, you'll find Isaiah. And then chapter 5 of Isaiah. One of the great themes throughout the Old Testament is the significance of vineyards and fig trees. And this passage helps us to see that as well as to see what God's looking for. So Isaiah was a prophet and he normally gave out prophecies. He didn't usually tell parables, but the Lord instructs him in verse five to speak as it were in a parable or a song or a poem. And so a lot of Bibles, you'll see that chapter five is the typefaces change from the regular narrative. The prophet has a story to tell. And chapter five begins this way. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And Isaiah goes on to press this imagery upon Israel for its disobedience. And the way it displeased God. But the pattern fits our parable in the New Testament, does it not? When God created the world, he put the ingredients in the world for it to work successfully and to exist for his glory. To carry his image and all of that throughout creation. Here in Isaiah 5, it says uh, he prepared it with choice vines. It's not his fault that something goes wrong. It's the sin of the individuals. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. Why would you do that? Well, because you're going to be watching. You're going to be caring and supervising and aware. He hewed out a wine vat in it. My guess is something carved out of rock. Now, why would someone build a wine vat? Hmm, let me think. Boys and girls, do you know why the owner of that vineyard built a a wine vat, a big container? Because he expected grapes and would make wine. 
He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, unusable grapes, rebellious grapes. And that's a picture of God's people whom he provided for, but they were doing their own thing and they weren't serving him. And so Isaiah 5 uses that. We do well to remember back in Luke 13 that Jesus says basically the same thing. God is looking at his people, indeed the whole world today, and he's looking for fruit. He has a right to look for it. The third thing our parable in Luke 13 tells us as we see it, see its theology laid out, is that God is patient, but he has set a deadline. God is patient. He's patient, and another word comes to mind, forbearing. Patient is the attitude that, okay, something's not what I want, but I'm going to hold off. Forbearance is holding off action that's due and required. That's God. God is patient. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, the Bible tells us. In Exodus 34, it says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That expression occurs throughout the Old Testament because it's true of our God. And if you know anything, if you've read your Old Testament and seen God with his people, the Jews of the day, you know God is patient. That's a, that's a clear takeaway. But he is patient, but there is a deadline. In the parable that we're looking at today, uh, the man, the owner of the vineyards, come for three years. The first year he came, he was expecting fruit, so he didn't come the day it was planted. He came when it was reasonable to expect fruit. He came that first year and didn't get anything. So he waits. He comes a second year, doesn't get anything. Hmm. So he waits. He comes a third year. For three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, the one planted in the middle of his vineyard. I find none. Cut it down. Yet when the vine dresser, the gardener, whatever we want to call him, the horticulturalist, when he pleads and intercedes, let's give it one more year, the owner says, okay. That's God's prerogative to exercise his patience. You should know that in the Bible, when something's carried to the third degree, uh, uh, one year, two years, three years, or something perhaps more familiar, holy, 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 the superlative degree, it, it represents the fullness of the virtue that's being referred to, whether it's holiness or here, patience. He was adequately patient. He could have cut it down and, and, and been without uh, uh, any doubt uh, or correction. But he waits one more day. One of the great preachers of America, perhaps you don't know his name, Edward Dorr Griffin, Edward D. Griffin, uh, preached in the Boston area. Uh, his sermons are some of the most beautiful sermons I've ever read. From the colonial period, or maybe it's the 1800s, it's after the colonial, 1800s. Uh, faithful man of God. Um, oh, I, I read his sermon on this text. And he focused and, and spent most of his time on this phrase, one more year. He said, let me tell you how to know if you're in your final chance. 
Wow. From such a a great, soft-hearted, eloquent preacher, it was a pretty sobering sermon. He says, you know you're on your last chance if you're old. What? Well, if God's been patient with you and you're getting up there in years, you know. You might not have more chances. He's just speaking the truth. And then he says, if you've heard lots of sermons, if you've witnessed, as he did in his day, revival, I would say if you've seen someone else's life changed by the gospel and you go, huh, that's not exactly my experience. If you have witnessed God's work, if it has come near, you may be on your final season. I can loan you that sermon if you'd like to read it all. It's very convicting. For you see, God's patience does have a deadline. The vine dresser, the the gardener knew that. He knew he was accountable. He had to ask permission. But there will be an end to God's days of mercy. There will be an end to God's days of patience and forbearing. He waited and waited and waited before he wiped out the wicked countries in the Middle East and gave the promised land to his people as they moved in and conquered. He was watching the Canaanites and he said, their sin is not yet complete. We're going to wait. He held his people in slavery in Egypt 400 years. God is patient. But peoples that should have lived for God did not and judgment will come. In fact, the Greek here in verses 8 and 9 suggests this is the last opportunity. It's pretty clear. Just one last opportunity. It could be the case with some hearing this sermon today. The Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, and in chapter 2 he asks his readers... Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Do you think lightly of these things? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. His waiting and waiting is to give you that opportunity. So the parable presents a worldview with God and his rights and God and his patience, God and his deadline. That's clear throughout this parable in Luke 13. And we need to understand that. That's the backdrop for the problem. What's the problem in this parable? Why is Jesus having to tell it to his listeners? Because the fruit tree was fruitless. The fig tree had no figs. They couldn't make fig newtons or, no, the figs were a staple in their diet. It was a a very common food. But they had no fruit. That's the problem. And Jesus told the parable because the people listening had the same problem. Yes, initially he's speaking primarily about the nation of Israel. There would just be one more season. Perhaps one more go-round. We know that God allowed the, the Roman Empire to, to come into Jerusalem in AD 70 and wipe the place out, destroy the temple, and disperse the Jews. 
There's a great, horrible conflagration and punishment. But they had passed on the Messiah. They had not responded fruitfully. The parable is also for more than the nation of Israel, the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Jesus tells it for those who would and should follow him. For us, are we fruitless or fruitful? Now, fruitlessness is often very obvious. I've seen apple trees with very few apples. And New York's pretty good at getting the apples to grow, so something must be wrong. But let me ask with this second heading, what are the the symptoms or even the causes of fruitlessness that we can check, that we should know about, that we should look at? Certainly given the context between Luke uh, chapters, let's say, 9 and 19, Jesus is constantly uh, pushing and shoving verbally with the Pharisees and the scribes, the lawyers and the religious types. Because they are religious, but they are not right with God, most, many of them. In that broader context, we can see the symptoms of fruitlessness in three ways. Presumption, and I did look for another P word, pompousness and pride. What am I thinking? Well, with the word presumption, I'm thinking of uh, 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 a wrong idea that leads to inactivity or the wrong activity. If you start with the wrong idea, you're not going to get the right results. One source said the sin of presumption is an unwarranted or habitual expectation that eternal life will be gained without God's assistance or that salvation will be granted regardless of one's personal response to God's grace. Yeah, the sin of presumption. Looking at a couple examples in Luke, back in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist was preaching. And John the Baptist said at Luke 3 verse 8, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, he's saying, don't get presumptuous on me. We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Wow. The Jews from Jerusalem came out to see this man, this preacher in the Jordan River, and they're listening. And he's trying to get them to repent and get washed in the Jordan for repentance. And he's he's telling them to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And don't say to yourselves, we're okay. We have Abraham as our father. We're Jewish. We're okay. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, you do not enter heaven apart from faith in God's provision of salvation. Old Testament or New Testament, no one was saved apart from faith in God on God's terms. The danger of presumption was seen just a week or two ago when we were looking at Luke chapter 12. Do you remember that? Jesus was talking about being ready for the return of a master. It was a little story and there were some that weren't ready for the master because they were presumptuous. Luke 12, 44 and 45, uh, Jesus is telling the story. Truly, truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. That's the previous guy. But verse 45, but if that servant says to himself, you see, that's the presumptive thinking. Uh, 
But he says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. Uh-oh, that's not good. So what leads to fruitlessness and not being pleasing to God is presumption. It's the wrong idea has gotten into your head. And you're indulging it and it, it, using it to justify your lack of activity or your wrong activities. There's another symptom of fruitlessness I'm calling pompousness. And here I'm thinking of a guy all dressed up and strutting about. He's showing off. What is he showing off? Well, again, recalling the Pharisees that Jesus often corrected and warned and called out. They were focused on religious activity, but outwardly, externally. Their piety was primarily uh, their outward actions and not the attitude of their hearts. Jesus had a lovely phrase for that. He said, you look all nice and white on the outside, but inside you're corrupt. He said they were whitewashed tombs. Well, what's a tomb? It's where a dead body is inside. So there's no life inside. But on the outside, it looks very pretty if it's whitewashed. That doesn't please God to to have external piety without the inward piety. Or another parable just a few weeks ago from Luke 12, the man with the barns and the productive fields, Luke 12, 16 and following, he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man was very productive. Ooh, he's, he's got a lot going on. He began reasoning with himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and goods. I've got it good. And so there's this outward pomposity. But he wasn't inwardly ready because in that parable, back in chapter 12, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. You need to do what pleases God. There will be a deadline. You're not ready, even if you've got all this busyness to show. You can think of this pompous situation as a A fruit tree with just a lot of leaves, but no fruit. Oh, I got a lot of leaves. Look at all my leaves. They're blowing. They're shiny. They're healthy. Got no fruit. Does not please God. Or the the third possible symptom for this fruitlessness might be pride. Here I'm thinking of the unteachable spirit that kept many where they were. You see... We've been through Luke 9, 10, 11, and 12. Jesus has been engaging. Jesus has been coming up with parables. Jesus is trying to at least verbally take his listeners by the ears and say, are you listening? He's working hard. He's somewhat repetitive uh, with with his divine teaching, trying to get through. But many are unteachable. They refuse correction or counsel. And that's pride. They hear, but they don't listen. They don't heed. It's a difference between being a participant and a spectator. Uh, Jesus didn't come to put on a show. Uh, We don't have the Bible so that you could just see it there displayed on the shelf. 
Christianity isn't just about what the guy in the pulpit says and the organ, the piano play and people sing and you go home. It's about you having a right relationship with God and living for his glory. You need to hear that. And it's nothing new to the New Testament explicitly. For instance, I recommend this afternoon, read through Deuteronomy chapter 8. You know, you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, you've got the giving of the law. Then all of a sudden you've got this book, which is the second law. It's like a recap. It's like a repeat. You even got the Ten Commandments in there a second time, right? Why the whole book of Deuteronomy with its recap of the law? It's because we need to hear and and be taught. Here's a sample, two verses at the start of Deuteronomy 8. Hear how Moses, the man of God, pleads with God's people. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord Jehovah swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. God wants us to be teachable. He wants us to end up being obedient, and a sign of obedient faith would be fruit, good works, things that please God should come from a new heart. From a follower of God. You could also read James if you have time this Sunday afternoon. Faith without works is dead. So there are signs to this fruitlessness that should trouble people. I don't think this fruitfulness is simply, uh, I've heard some preachers say, have you ever led someone to Christ? Have you ever shared the gospel and seen someone born again? Well, if not, you're not fruitful. That's not the picture. The picture is instead a faith that brings forth the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Are you being changed? And yes, hopefully you can help see others changed. That's wonderful. We're born again and born to reproduce spiritually. If you've been born again, you know all that someone else needs to know. To come to Christ. But fruitlessness was a problem in Israel. They didn't see and receive the Messiah. They were stuck in their presumptuous ways. Jesus tells this parable. May we not repeat the problem of Israel. We who have been given so much. Do we hear? Do we heed? This is way more important than planning a New Year's resolution. This is about, well, how did Joshua put it? Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me, I will serve the Lord. Not popular in our culture. Christianity and culture are certainly changing places. But the church wins in the end. Christ's kingdom will endure. So let's address our fruitlessness. And the closing heading here of the sermon is just taking away from the whole of the parable. Why does Jesus tell this parable? Why does he care? Because he's the Messiah. He's come 
to see these things change. The first thing we should see to have hope from our gracious Savior is that Jesus agrees that fruitlessness is a problem. Right? He didn't tell this parable to say, hey, don't worry about it. We got a whole other year. We've got financing, no payments until 2029. (laughs) People bite on that because it's delaying. That's not why Jesus is telling this parable. He's telling it so that the present can be redeemed and there's no fear of fruitlessness. He agrees that fruitlessness is a problem. He sees our problem. Do you remember the first sermon of Jesus, uh, his first extended teaching time recorded in Luke? I know we've been going through Luke. We're just going through bit by bit. We're not all over the Bible. We're in the book of Luke. And so it's about a year ago. We were in chapter 4. Listen to some of the words of Jesus in that day. He was in Nazareth. He had been handed the scroll of Isaiah. And he read the following. Let me start in verse 16, chapter 4. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And was, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. Here's the quote. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When we look at those verses and listen to Jesus, we're usually captivated. He's the deliverer. The Spirit of the Lord is on him. He's preaching good news. He's proclaiming. We see Jesus. But do you notice in the sermon that the reading and the pronouncement that Jesus gives, he also sees our problems. He doesn't rewrite and says, I'm okay, you're okay. No, he sees our problems. According to Isaiah in Luke chapter 4, as Jesus is preaching, he, he brings good news because we're impoverished. We need the good news. We're captives. We need liberty. We're blind and we need sight. We're oppressed and we need freedom and God's favor. Jesus knows our problem. And it starts within. It doesn't start with the social gospel. It starts with the spiritual reality. We need salvation. But when God changes sinners into saints, he says, you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Go do those good works. Jesus agrees to our problems. He sees us in our need. That's that's wonderful to tell someone else. Jesus doesn't come just with a new list of do's and don'ts for us. He comes to save. He comes to supply and secure and deliver. Those are going to be some of the themes in Advent. What Jesus has done. People think Christianity is just another checklist that that is too much to bear. That's more criticism perhaps for the old covenant and all the laws and precepts. Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Getting ahead of myself. He agrees about the problem. Number two. We'll get to the good news, but secondly, Jesus uses hard words 
to plow hard hearts. You didn't see that coming. You probably didn't know why we're talking about Luke 13 and these challenging words on the Sunday right after Thanksgiving. Well, it's because we're looking at God's whole counsel, all his word. And we see here what Jesus has done often. He uses hard words to wedge into hard hearts and see them opened to the gospel. Biblical preachers preach law and gospel. They preach the truth of God and the reality is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They also preach the gospel. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He uses hard words to plow hard hearts. I've got a couple quick samples from Luke, uh, some back in chapter 6. It's been a while since we're in chapter 6. Jesus said things like, woe, 624, but woe to you who are rich. You've received your consolation. 625, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, you shall mourn and weep. In 26, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Jesus is not afraid to speak hard words to get the attention of hard hearts and hardened consciences. I know when we want to share something with someone else, we don't usually pick the woe passages. If you're writing a letter to someone, you usually don't put OPS, woe to you. Well, maybe some do. I'll speak with you later. We always like to put the good news out there. But some hearts are caught up in presumptuous thinking, their own external piety, their pride, their pomposity, what have you. And this hard word needs to come and strike us between the eyes. God's word needs to come and pierce our hearts. Like Nathan, who brought God's word to King David, who had sinned with Bathsheba. He told him a little story, and when David was all worked out, he said, Thou art the man. Sometimes the very words of Jesus have to arrest us in order that he might pay our bail, forgive us, and adopt us. He uses hard words. Hebrews 4, verse 12. Boys and girls, you better know this verse. I hope this is underlined in your Bibles. You know about the Bible as a sword. Hebrews 4, verse 12. Make sure to find this. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Does that happen during your devotions? You're reading something and all of a sudden you start squirming a little bit. You're ready to turn the page. Be done with that chapter. Happens to me all the time. I got a lot of work left done in me. God's word gets the work done. Even to the seven letters in the first chapters of Revelation... Uh, those seven letters represent God's word as it is to all churches. But in chapter 2, he, God was writing to Pergamum, Jesus, and he said this to Pergamum, Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The sword of his mouth was mentioned by John in chapter 1 when he first saw the heavenly glorified Jesus blazing in his divine effulgence and glory 
And part of that apocalyptic description had a sword coming out of his mouth. Jesus is not afraid to wield the sword, the sword of his word. He uses hard words to plow and open hard hearts. Let God's word have its way with you. Don't think right away, oh, this is good for so-and-so. Let it start with me. But thirdly, there is hope from a gracious Savior. Jesus offers help with true gospel promises. Yes, in this specific paragraph, it's hard to see the gospel promise articulated. But in its context and in its purpose, Jesus is telling this so that we would allow God to cultivate, to break up the fallow ground of our heart with his word, implant faith within and draw forth fruitfulness. He's telling us so that it would happen. He doesn't say, I know what's going to happen to you, and I'm not telling. Jesus comes because he wants to see sinners helped. This is the Jesus who gets to Jerusalem, looks over, and he weeps. You guys have had prophets come to you, and now the Son of God has come to you. And you don't engage. Matthew's Gospel records Jesus' offer in chapter 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Be teachable. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. The saving welcome words of Jesus. When we realize that we need rest, we are poor, we are captive, we are oppressed. We need the deliverance, we need the good news. Jesus brings it. Or as we read earlier from Luke 4, quoting Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news. That's Jesus speaking now. There was another passage back in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, good church-going guy, we could say. He sends word to Jesus. Are you the one or should we look for another? How did Jesus reassure him? Luke 7, 22, he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Let the experience you have with Jesus give you confidence and assurance. And what Jesus offered during his days on earth, he continues to offer. He told his first disciples, go and proclaim forgiveness of sins. Go and preach, repent and believe. Go so that you can make disciples of all nations. This gospel is still available. It is still at hand. Let me close with just three quick words, action words, so we can act and hopefully... Uh, have the right thinking behind it, having looked at this passage of Scripture. First, hear, hear the urgency in Jesus' words. 
It's not the first time he's held feet to the fire. He gives us this picture that there's a deadline coming. This fig tree is in jeopardy. It should bear figs. We should live for the glory of God. Hear the urgency in his voice. Secondly, know, know the deadline is real. This is a parable. It says, well, maybe next year we'll see fruit. Maybe we won't. But the deadline is real. And you don't know exactly when the deadline is coming. You just know that it's real. If you knew exactly when the deadline was coming, that would be a terrible burden to to carry. As Jesus taught, you need to be ready now, knowing the deadline's coming, knowing that there'll be a day of judgment, but not knowing exactly when it comes. It comes like a thief in the night, so be ready now. And thirdly, ask. Ask for help from Jesus. This is a moment of gospel opportunity. This preaching from God's word on this date, this calendar day in your life, not to be repeated because time is linear, this may be Jesus making his appeal to you, his gospel appeal. Christians aim from this day forward to live a life that pleases God and bears fruit. Confess any fruitlessness and aim where you need to aim and get God's help. There was a very rich Englishman named C.T. Studd. I'm going to close with this. He, instead of having his great inheritance and indulging himself in the uh, hierarchy of English life, he became a missionary. This is the guy who said, if Jesus Christ was God and he gave himself for me, no sacrifice on my part is too great. So C.T. Studd goes off to the mission field and at some point he penned this line, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. You may have heard that. This is the poem that it comes in from C.T. Studd. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its days I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And skipping a few stanzas, these are the last two. Oh, let my love with fervor burn. And from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasures on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. 
And when at last I'll hear the call, I'll know, I'll say, "'Twas worth it all, only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sound of truth. How it cuts through all the garbage we hear day in and day out. It really redirects and reorients us. We thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the inner witness and illumination of the Holy Spirit that we can understand your word and see themes from Isaiah 5 right through the teachings of Jesus that you watch for fruitfulness and there will be a deadline, one final season. There will be an accounting. Father, may we seize upon your grace and goodness and live fruitful, obedient lives, pleasing you. We're thankful for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who procures for us all that we need, a pardon, adoption. He imparts to us the Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, have your way with us. Tune our heart to sing your praise and to serve your purposes. We thank you for loving us to tell us truth and to give us hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.